This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Tanya Wolfe and Lizzie O'Shea. Tanya is President of the Law Institute of Victoria and Lizzie is Chair of Digital Rights Watch. They sat down with me to delve into the Victorian Government's proposed digital health record with no opt-out provision. It's called the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill 2023. It passed the lower house last week and with serious concerns about privacy, patient autonomy, as well as cybersecurity, there are moves to seek to amend it in the upper house by the crossbench. If you feel strongly about this proposed legislation, make sure you contact the Victorian crossbench MPs and your local upper house MP. For the final interview for today, I'm going to be joined by two brilliant people who are doing great work in the space of civil liberties and rights and human rights, digital rights, privacy, etc. And they are Tanya Wolfe, who is president of the Law Institute of Victoria, and Lizzie O'Shea, who is chair of Digital Rights Watch. They're both joining me to talk about a very important piece of potential law. It's still a bill. It hasn't been passed both houses yet. It has passed the lower house towards the end of February last week. We have heard a lot of information about this bill, or at least I have, but it hasn't certainly been covered in the media much over the last, gosh, what is it now, three or four years. I originally spoke about this issue and the bill in its original form last March with Juanita Fernando from the Australian Privacy Foundation, and it was called the Health Legislation Amendment Information Sharing Bill 2021. It is now the same title, but 2023, and it has been reintroduced in that form into the lower house and, as I said, passed by the Labor government there. It's a different story in the upper house But certainly the same themes, the same concerns have arisen once again from the consumer groups, healthcare groups, law groups and rights groups. The same concerns they had, you know, in 2021, in 2022, are still present in 2023. And I did hear the health minister on the radio on Raf Epstein's show trying to defend the digital health record, this proposed state-based digital health record, saying that it's necessary and that not only is it necessary, an opt-out clause, really it's just not possible, she said. Basically, she didn't really have a very rational reason for why Victorians couldn't opt out of this digital health record, just like 10% of Australians opted out of the My Health record. So to talk about the details of this bill which amends the Health Services Act of 1988, is both Tanya Wolfe and Lizzie O'Shea. Thank you both for joining me today. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having us on. Thank you both. Now, let's talk about this bill and obviously where it's come from, what the rationale is from the Labor Party, the Labor government at the state level here in Victoria, but also some of its supporters who aren't in Labor and, of course, Uh, The Greens definitely did support this in the lower house and the MP Tim Reid, the member for Brunswick, was supportive of this, being a former doctor himself. Tanya, could you take us through what the Victorian state government's rationale is 
for proposing these amendments and for essentially establishing something that doesn't exist now, which is a, a very extensive digital health record. Sure. Thanks, Amy. Look, the, the, the rationale really comes from a Targeting Zero report, which was a report that was commissioned by the government into um, what was looking at the safety and the quality of our healthcare system, and it provided a number of recommendations to government. And this is one of the recommendations that have, has flown, that has, has emerged through that. It's essentially to, to move from a paper-based health record system to an electronic health record system. And there's a clear efficiency argument in relation to that. But can I just be really clear about one thing, Amy, and that's we don't, and I don't hear of anyone actually who is concerned about this bill opposing a digital record, opposing an electronic record for health or enabling sort of an interchange of information in a more efficient way. No one has that concern. The concern, though, revolves around the patient's right, the consumer's right, Victorian's right to be able to say, well, we want to be part of this sharing system or we don't. So the ability to opt out and that is the major concern. Indeed. It's clearly something that came up with the previous instance, the federal My Health Record. There wasn't an opt out clause originally for that. And then there was a huge outcry, just like there is now, but it's at a much smaller scale, unfortunately, because I guess it's not really been uh, in the news as much as it should be. And it's been very concerning to see that it hasn't had that similar coverage for people to have that level of public awareness of how this might affect them uh, and whether they will have that option, which clearly at the moment they don't. I wanted to talk about the scope of the data that's being collected and also the people who might get to use it because that would inform a consumer and it would help tell them whether they would, in theory, opt out or remain in such a scheme. It's something that people should be able to understand. So to read, I just wanted to read some of the services the Participating Health Service is what it's called, and they would be ambulance services, a denominational hospital, a metropolitan hospital, a multi-purpose service, a public hospital, a registered community health centre, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health, a residential care service within the meaning of the Aged Care Act, uh, the Victorian Collaborative Centre for Mental Health and Wellbeing, and a prescribed entity or a prescribed class of entity that provides health services. That's pretty extensive uh, when you think about the types of groups that would be encompassed in this and also the types of groups who would be required to provide this information to this centralised uh, database. And there have been concerns, given how wide that scope is, how this might affect sensitive patient groups like those who might suffer from mental health illnesses, uh, also who might be a domestic violence victim survivor, for those from the LGBTIQ plus community who may have sensitive healthcare needs, uh, for those in the chronic 
illness and disability community who may not want all of their information shared. Could you talk to us about some of the concerns that you've heard from consumers around, uh, you know, the sensitivity of the information and also just the scope of where this information is going to come from, but also then who can access it. And I'm happy for both Tanya and Lizzie to contribute if you both have opinions on that. Sure. Um, so just in terms of who can, the, the information that can be accessed, it's pretty significant because all of your health records for several years and going forward will be uploaded onto, um, will be provided to the Department of Health that will create a information sharing platform that all will be then accessible by all health services in that list that you've mentioned, but don't forget that a schedule, you can just amend and add different entities onto that schedule, which the government has been very clear about the fact that they'll want to add more services into that schedule as time goes on. Um, so they will be able to access all of your health records and, and your health records for a number of years. And let's not forget what is on health records. So for example, a discharge summary, which is when you've gone to a hospital and you leave, has a lot of information, things that you might have told a clinician. And from a family violence perspective, that's a real concern. So it may be that, you know, you in a situation of trust and confidence have told a clinician or disclosed events in relation to a family violence incident. In that circumstance, that record at the moment, according to the bill, will be uploaded by the Department of Health onto that website and let's say you're doing that in Alfred Hospital, someone in the Mildura's Hospital will be able to instantaneously view that record. So it is, it is very significant in relation to the safety for that patient um, and that person to be able to manage the way in which their information is being handled. There may be sexual health um, information from um, a, a consultation or a procedure or a treatment that you've accessed in a participating health service that you don't necessarily want to be readily accessible by hundreds or, you know, could be hundreds of health services and definitely tens of thousands of public health employees. So you might have concerns about that. So there are a number of concerns in relation to this. And just to be really clear, when I mentioned earlier, Amy, about that targeting zero report, although it was talking about an efficiency me measure by introducing that electronic health record system, it never mentioned that there would not be a, a, a respecting of patients' rights or an ability to opt out. Um, and certainly patient autonomy and patient rights have been at the forefront of government legislation over numerous years now, and is actually in Victorian legislation and other legislation right now in law that we have now. So this is quite a move away from that. Um, so that they're the kind of information that I think people are concerned about, and we've been hearing about people being concerned. But if we go back to the fundamental principles of people having the right to choose how their sensitive and private information might be used or stored or accessed or to whom it may be communicated with. That's a fundamental right, and that's the one that we're saying should not be um, abrogated by this legislation, should not be impinged upon, because that's absolutely essential. 
Oh, and indeed. Yeah, I, um, yeah Lucy, I go ahead. To, I just want to add to that because I think when we think about this or what the problem that's trying to be solved by this regime, the, often we think, oh, well, we've got to make sure that everyone can act, get access to the optimal possible care and if they have to give up their right to privacy, then that's justified because a treating doctor needs that information. And I think that can um, stray into, it's an understandable concern, but I think it can stray into a paternalistic attitude. You know, people may have very good reasons why they don't want their information stored in a centralised database. And if we uh, preempt that and, and deny them the right to make that choice, we are potentially creating harm further down the track, even if it's not in that particular care relationship when they present to a treater. Because if you're someone who's trying to avoid an abusive ex-partner and, uh, you know, with all good intentions, there's a method by which your address then leaks through a discharge summary or can be accessed by someone who, who shouldn't be able to access it. The amount of possible things that could go wrong, um, it's, it's quite a large amount. And I think we have a duty to respect people's rights, to make decisions, to say, well, look, I appreciate I might have to have a different kind of care because my records aren't instantly accessible uh, and I'm making that decision knowingly and I want to opt out. And I, th I think there's a real argument that if you live in a rights-respecting society, you have to give people the autonomy and the right to make those calls themselves and appreciate that there's, you know, a compromise there. Um, you know, the care may be different, but that's the price they're willing to pay for the right to keep that information to themselves. And I, that's the tradition that's routinely been followed in Victoria. Victoria has been a leader federally with a, a rights charter. Um, you know, it was one of the first states to introduce that. We've traditionally had a rights respecting culture in Victoria, and this runs foul of that tradition. And I think it's worth thinking through um, some of the counterweight examples to what's put as the primary concern of this bill, which is the delivery of optimal health care. It's, it's understandable people want to get access to optimal health care, but in a rights respecting society, we have to also consider other factors that might um, that might mean that people don't want that and might mean that people are prepared to accept different outcomes because they want to protect their information and in fact you know encourage them to continue accessing health services without being worried that that information is being recorded in a system that maybe uh, isn't as secure as they would like you know there's a risk obviously when information stored in a central location um, and and if people can't opt out of that they may be disincentivized from from seeking care and that's also a poor outcome you know so I think it's worth thinking through some of these mm. examples that that go against this idea that optimal care is the the only objective here that is worth considering, and that's the justification for this kind of regime. Mm, absolutely. I I wanted to read out some of the sections here, just that the things that I think are key because I think they get glossed over in interviews. And there, there are two sections that I think are important, the no consent required section and the access section. And the no consent required section says that a participating health service may collect, use or disclose specified patient health information as permitted or authorised without the consent of the person to whom the information relates. The secretary, and that is the health secretary, may collect, use or disclose specified patient health information as permitted or authorised without the consent of the person to whom the information relates. Then when you get to access, this is the bit that I'm particularly interested in both of your input on. It says essentially, and it defines access and the person who is allowed to access these health records within a, a medical system. This is the definition. 
a person employed or engaged by a participating health service and who is authorised by that health service may access the electronic patient health information sharing system and use and disclose specified patient health information for the purpose of providing medical treatment to a person. And additionally, the secretary or a person employed or engaged and authorised in writing by the secretary may access the electronic patient health information sharing system and use and disclose specified patient health information for different purposes, including establishing, maintaining and operating the sharing system and undertaking information security and data management. Now, those access requirements and kind of definitions are also pretty broad and they don't just encompass nurses and doctors. They seem to encompass bureaucrats and IT people and public servants. I wonder whether you, Lizzie, and you, Tanya, have concerns about that as well, because that does go to who can access these records and could they unknowingly fall into the wrong hands? Clearly, that's a concern. Um, and con what, what is really an issue here as well is that there is no ability to audit the use of your information because and as against what, what is the current trend to allow the individual to access um, how their information is being stored by government. Here, FOI is precluded, so you can't actually FOI the Department of Health for an audit trail of who has used and accessed their information. Well, that's a real problem for us as well. So um, the, the, the concern about that is broad. Obviously, it's very broad. Um, but there is no ability to audit it. Yeah, and I just want to bring this information in for you, Lizzie, as well. Uh, mm. When I spoke to Juanita Fernando last year, she said something which stuck with me, which is that databases contain facts, but they don't contain context. And so there's a whole lot of information that gets uploaded with very little context as to where it came from, who really, uh, you know, wrote this, in what circumstance was it written in. Sometimes a discharge summary is, uh, has context, but often other things may not have that context. And also sometimes those facts may not even be correct. And just as Tanya said, you then can't audit it, you can't provide context to the data that's in there, you can't correct it if it's inaccurate, uh, because we know that a lot of records can have inaccuracies. If these um, treating medical clinicians, if they're the ones who do end up using it, get all this information, you know, is there a chance that they'll get a lot of information that's not even contextualised or correct in some cases? That seems to be another question that has arisen. Yeah, that's that's certainly a concern. I mean, I'm not a doctor, of course, but, um, you know, part of the the justification put is that, you know, someone presents in an emergency department, they're not competent, they can't, um, in, in a legal sense, in a medical sense, can't give instructions about what's happened to them. And um, and then, of course, you have to infer what might be wrong with them. You don't have their records and, and the like. But you're right to point out that a full history or a full set of patient records doesn't always give you um, the information that you might need at that critical time. Like, we can often assume that this kind of regime is going is is absolutely necessary because it results in the best possible care. But there is more to the story there because, of course, you're right, those records can have errors, they can um, be um, missing certain key information and the like. And that's really a question for how treaters work and how these, you know, emergency departments respond um, to treating someone. Um, and I think the reality is that a lot of 
of times people present with complex conditions or multiple conditions, particularly among older populations. And there may be a justification for using an electronic database like this for, for people like that. And they're not the people that are going to necessarily opt out of a system like this, right? There may be good use cases for this kind of information. You know, I have a I have a broader concern about how we design these databases as a whole. I think if you took a totally different approach to this and you you um you changed it and you opt for a decentralized model, there's there's an there's a whole different way you might do this if you were concerned primarily with information infrastructure and you thought through those issues. Um, but I also think uh, you know that the, the, the system as presented um, could actually be be useful for certain sections of the population, but that that's not inconsistent with allowing people for whom it's not useful to opt out mm. for ensuring there's really rigorous transparency around who might have accessed the system, so that then you know it, it, Tanya was talking about FOI. There's no reason I don't think that someone couldn't shouldn't have access to the audit of who's been accessing um, their health records because that helps in form what might have gone wrong if they had um, poor treatment outcomes, but also if there's some misuse of the database that can be identified and addressed. Um, you know, transparency would seem to be a pretty much a no-brainer in this context. It creates disincentives for misuse. And it seems unclear to me why why you wouldn't allow for that kind of transparency at a minimum. And then, you know, of course, allow that flexibility for people for whom the system doesn't work. Um, there is a broader, in terms of the opt-out, there is one broader thing that I, I think is worth considering too, which is around public trust in these kinds of databases. You know, during the um, pandemic, we all gave away huge amounts of personal information on the basis that it was helping with a public health issue with um, stopping the spread of the virus. Victoria wasn't um, particularly good, I think, in in quarantining that information from sharing with police, for the for example, for criminal justice purposes. Whereas other states did make that distinction and and prohibited that kind of sharing. You know, we're coming at this from a low level of public trust, I think, in government when it comes to large amounts of personal information. And I think governments could do better at instilling confidence in the population that when we share personal information with them, it won't go on to be used by a third party for some other purpose that we didn't originally share it for. And, um, you know, that's my concern about some of this really broad wording around uh, the entities that you were talking about before, Amy. And I think the government could work harder to say, you know, you can trust us with this because these are the kinds of systems we're putting in place. Don't just take our word for it. We've designed the system so that it can be tightly managed, so that it's transparent and accountable. And that's because we don't want you to just trust us. We want you to trust the system. And that kind, that's the kind of culture I'd like to see as a digital rights activist, you know, in Victoria, but also federally. And it's just, it's just always perceived as being um, some kind of luxurious concern that activists like I have, when in fact, you know, we've seen large numbers of data breaches, lots of mm. cases of misuse, um, and low levels of public trust in government that arise from those contexts. And I think it's really an opportunity here for Victoria to turn that around. And that's the kind of uh, approach I'd like to see to these kinds of systems. Absolutely. I'll um, come back to Lizzie in a moment to talk about data security. But Tanya, I also wanted to ask you, given your legal expertise, about another part of this uh, bill. And we've, I think, briefly referenced it, which is the function of being able to gazette something, to gazette a change uh, if the health secretary would like to amend things. Could you talk to us about the scope in the bill to gazette changes by a public servant such as the secretary in the Department of Health? Well, I'm not, not sure if I can speak directly to that. I can say that there, there can be amendment and additioning and, and 
adding more services to this um, bill, um, and, and that's the problem when it becomes a legislation, um, that it will, you know, there will be more that will be added to it. It will be quite broad. And I think just referring to what um, Elizabeth was saying before, how which was completely correct, um, we, we, at the moment, we also assume that the data is completely up to date, but right, right now, the GPs are excluded from it. Private healthcare um, operators are, uh, are excluded from it. So it's quite possible that the information that is on that electronic record doesn't have that context and is not the most up-to-date in any event. So it's not really precluding, you know, or stopping the, the need for finding out more information, doing it in the ordinary way, which is asking the patient for their consent mm. to be able to obtain that document, that data, which is absolutely essential. And the other point I just wanted to touch on, because Olivia was mentioning that as well, is that once the system is up and running, um, in the same way as my health records, there are a number of people who looked at it and said, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this, I don't want to opt in, so I'm going to opt out. And at the time, the Greens and the Labor Party, the Federal Labor Party, pushed for an opt-out clause in line with principles of human rights and patient autonomy. Subsequently to that, when people looked at it and saw what was accessed and what would be put on, um, a number of people decided to opt back in again. And that's the kind of system that you have in a mature um, rights-respecting community uh, because it allows people to have the choice and to get the information that they, they need and then to be able to satisfy themselves. And for a number of patients, it will be... But they don't have they don't have a concern about this. But for those that do, it's not for us mm. to inquire as to why they have concerns or if they have concerns about these things and if it's soundly based. If someone is concerned about their information being on a system like this, then they do they should have the right to opt out. And we know as as we've mentioned already today that there've been recent terrible data breaches that have concerned the public. Um, you know, half the community got a, an email or a text from Medicare, the other half from Optus. Um, we know that, you know, mm. databases aren't impervious to being able to be accessed and people have concerns. And I, mm. I've even spoken to medical practitioners that are concerned about how this might impact, impact on their insurance or if they're applying for a job in a healthcare facility or a promotion, whether or not, you know, their previous disclosures of significant mental health issues might be taken in an adverse way and they might not get an interview. So there, mm. there are concerns that are quite widespread in relation to this. And all we're asking is allow the public to have a choice and allow people to be able to make decisions themselves and opt in and opt out, which, by the way, is what we can do with so many different things at the moment now because we're able to make decisions about our future medical treatment and deny future medical treatment that might be life-saving um, if we decide we want that through, you know, Medical Treatment okay. Decision Makers Act where you can have a binding directive in, in advance. We know that our um, views and preferences are to be taken into consideration with the new Mental Health and Wellbeing okay. Act. There is, there's such a trend to do that now. Um, and, in fact, that is the way that civilised societies are, are moving and democracies are moving, and yet this seems like such a retrograde step. Yeah, it is, yeah. To let people know what I was referencing there about the Gazette, um, in the section Notice of Health Information Required to be Given to the Secretary, the Secretary, by notice published in the Government Gazette, may specify health information to be given to the Secretary by participating health service 
for the purposes of this system. So there are sections in this bill which specify um, gazetting and the secretary being able to direct what they would like to happen through that process. I appreciate what you're saying there, Tanya, about the other ways that patients either consent or don't consent to certain health services. Lizzie, when I last spoke with Juanita, she was concerned about data security because, and this was before the Medibank and Optus leaks, uh, between 2019 and 2020 in Victoria, when looking at health data breaches, there was an increase, a 16% increase in health data breaches. And the Victorian government also featured in those breaches. Uh, there are previous examples of ransomware attacks on hospitals in Victorian public hospitals. What are some of the concerns that digital health um, sorry, Digital Rights Watch has put to the crossbench MPs in the upper house in this letter that I saw you put your name to just recently. What are some of the concerns and uh, and issues around data security um, that you would like the crossbench to consider and to, I guess, uh, hopefully amend the bill? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting time to do digital rights activists because I've talked about cybersecurity quite a bit, but um, I hate to say it, the last six months has really brought these conditions to the fore in a quite a visceral way for many people. And I feel really terrible for the victims of recent cyber attacks, but it does also focus the mind that these are a real thing because um, you can often assume that, that attacks are something that are, is always preventable or it's not going to happen in these scenarios because we've got very tight security measures. But I think that's kind of hubris you know cyber attacks are now part of life um and we need to plan for them like they're going to happen and they can be stopped as soon as possible and that we have the best possible practices in relation to cyber security and it's good to see the federal government for example elevating um standards across the country in that respect but the attack that comes to mind is actually sing health which has had a similar kind of regime and in 2018 one and a half million records were stolen in eight days while a vulnerability was um exposed including that of the president you know so very sensitive information that could be used for all sorts of different purposes by a nefarious actor. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I talk about decentralisation rather than creating a honeypot for attackers by centralising all health information in one spot, um, you know, supposedly run by the Victorian government, well, I think we should think about how we can decentralise these kinds of databases, include forms of friction so that access is not um, open-ended, that, that people don't just get access to these um, once and then forever in a different health service provider that, that really closes down access points and limits yeah. them as much as possible. So there shouldn't be an assumption that as soon as someone accesses it, they need a health record in a centralised system, they need to access that forevermore. Um, so really tightening up some of those concerns. A lot of this will be in implementation, I think, rather than, say, um, legislation legislatively prescribed, which, um, you know, on one level is fine because you need flexibility to adapt and you need to be allow people who are delivering this, if the, the bill is passed, to be able to act according to best standard cybersecurity. But I think it's, um, I, I just, I, I don't think it's fair the way that the government is currently answering concerns about privacy and cybersecurity by saying, oh, we're going to have very serious fines for misuse and breach, because um, I don't, that didn't, that didn't stop um, the hackers for Medibank and Optus. Um, I think what will stop and minimise the, these kinds of attacks is putting in place the best systems for cybersecurity, minimising access where possible, decentralising where possible, designing systems with that in mind um, and allowing... Um, allowing people, of course, to opt out so that they can avo avoid these things. That's part of it, 
to if they're particularly concerned um, and being transparent and accountable when things go wrong so that we can fix them, learning from things like the Singh Health disaster, you know, that they did put in place various steps and learning from, from them, including how things are accessed and, and limiting that. So that's what I would like to see in terms of implementing cybersecurity. I think we're a long way behind lots of other liberal democracies in this respect who are much further ahead. And so part of it's a long-standing issue that's been facilitated by the federal government. But I, I would like to think, again, Victoria could lead in this respect and be open and accountable about how they're introducing best practice cybersecurity rather than just trying to fob off concerns like this and claiming that they have high high penalties and, and this is this is a concern of tinfoil hat wearers, which I, I think it's fair to say is not not the no, case. Not at all. Tanya, just to and close out this chat, oh, sorry, I just was hoping to get your input on the situation as it stands because we've seen David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrats table a, a petition of over 10,000 signatures calling for the government to be amended, the government bill to be amended, just as you've requested that there needs to be a legislated opt-out clause and that these records are FOIable. And we know what the crossbench currently looks like, which is that we've got Liberals, uh, I'm not including the government, we've got um, the Greens, uh, Legalised Cannabis, Liberal Democrats, Animal Justice, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers, Democratic Labor and One Nation, and of course, concerns from the Liberal Nationals. Where do you think we will get to when this comes back to the Upper House in a week or two? Um, is there anything that people listening can do to put pressure on crossbench MPs to try and amend this, especially, of course, the Greens, who you would think would stand for um, patient consent and autonomy? Well, I would encourage um, or anyone who's listening to this who's concerned about this to make contact with all of the crossbenchers and to identify their concern um, from both the opt-out position and the FOI position, so not being able to opt-out, not being able to FOI, write to them, make contact with them, as you've identified. They're talking all the Greens. There are four Greens. There's one nation. There's, um, there's the Liberal Democrat, obviously, David Limerick is completely on side. In fact, mm. I think he's even asking for an opt-in rather than an opt-out. Um, the, the, the Liberal Party, the Coalition, uh, have expressed concerns about this as well, but you do need to put pressure on all of the crossbenchers and let them know that this is deeply concerning. And as Lizzie mentioned, penalties do not, um, do, do not deter or stop any privacy breaches, and I'm not aware there's really significant penalties in the existing Act for Health Services Act for disclosing health information in a way that you shouldn't in privacy breaches. And I don't I don't know of any time that this has ever been used to prosecute. So you don't want to shut the barn door after the, the horse has escaped. Let's get in quickly. No, and the current uh, penalty that is being suggested is that it would either be 240 penalty units or that is equivalent to two years' imprisonment for someone who... Uh, accesses the information and is not authorised to. And as we know, the number of people who could be authorised to access it is actually quite broad. So we're really talking about malicious actors and not um, a whole range of people who aren't doctors. 
Uh, thank you so much, both of you. I know it's been a bit of a whirlwind to get through all the detail of this bill, but it's been so critical to hear both of your voices because you're giving us so much insight into how this will affect everyone. And even if you think it doesn't affect you, it certainly is about rights, trust in government and patient care and autonomy. So I really do appreciate both your time, Tanya Wolf from the Law Institute of Victoria and Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks, Amy. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.